Now, as we what we have done as we put down the first column, the second column, the third column, we get this information down. He finally said, "Then we can let's read it across." Um, when we finish it on page six five, we said we consider it carefully. Now, once we read these, get all these resentments down, these first three columns, one column at a time from top to bottom, then we can read them across, and we can analyze them. Each one, once we get these three columns, we'll fit them together, read them across, and we, for the first time we can get down to the truth of each resentment. Now, if we get these resentments down, about 95% of them will leave us when we see the truth of them. Now, we, for some reason or another, we fashion ourselves as intelligent people. About 95% of these, some of these things look double dumb when you throw the light on them. You know, they really look dumb, too dumb for us. And there will be some resentments that will remain, some deep-seated resentments. And he suggests, as he has here, that we use prayer. And there's, there's a thing we know that there is no way, prayer, you know, prayer is one of the deepest commitments that we can make. Uh, and this, and this, we show concern for another person's welfare, love. And there is no way that it's humanly possible for resentment and prayer to coexist at the same time. Now, if we pray constantly, we will get over that resentment. It will work every time. As the illustration in one of our, our classic, and we use it a lot of times in, in Freedom from Bondage in the back of our book, 551, it is really a great example of using uh, prayer on resentments. 551, Freedom from Bondage. She says, I've had many spiritual experiences since I've been in the program. Many that I didn't recognize right away, for I've slowed to and they take many guises. But one was always outstanding. I would like to pass it on whatever I can and hope that it will help someone else as it has me. As I said earlier, self-pity and resentment were my constant companions. And my inventory began to look like a 33-year diary, for I seemed to have resentments against everyone I had ever known. All but one responded to the treatment suggested in the steps immediately, but this one posed a problem. She said it was against my mother. It was 25 years old. I had fed it and fanned it and nurtured it and won my delicate child. It had become much a part of me as my breathing. It provided me with excuses for my lack of education, my marital failures, personal failures and adequacy, and of course my alcoholism. And though I really thought I was willing to part with it, now I was reluctant to let it go. One morning, however, I realized I had to get rid of it, for my reprieve was running out, and if I didn't get rid of it, I was going to get drunk, and I didn't want to get drunk anymore. In my prayers that morning, I asked God to point out some way to be free of this resentment. During the day, a friend of mine brought me some mag magazines to take to the hospital group I was interested in. And I looked through them, and a banner across the front of it, one featured an article by a prominent clergyman in which I caught the words resentment. He said, in effect, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray, you will pray for the person or thing you resent, you will be free. If you will ask in prayers for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, and their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them, and your prayers are only words, and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. That's so simple says, do it every day for two weeks. 
and you will find that you have come to mean it and want it for them, and you will realize that where they used to feel bitterness, resentment, and hatred, you will feel compassionate, understanding, and love. Now, this will work on any resentment. There is no way that, that this resentment can continue to exist if we use prayer on it. And so if we have, if we have done this, then we, we don't, actually, if we have listed and analyzed 95% of them and prayed about the rest of them, we could have gotten, according to the book, and none of us would do it perfect, but we'd have gotten rid of all of our resentments at this point. Now, this, this book is perfect. We could be 100% free, but none of us will ever probably will be. But then the next job, then, is, you know, how do we keep these things from coming back? We got rid of those, but what about, what is the real cause of these resentments? Now, how do we get rid of that? Why do we keep these things from coming back? And he begins on page 67. Again, he said, back to 67, he said, referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done. We're resolute for our own mistakes. Now let's forget about what these people did. We don't went through all that. Let's look at ourselves. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Now let's let's look, take that fourth column out now, and let's look and see what. Where what did we do in each of these resentments? Though the situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to discard the other person's involvement entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory of ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black or white. We admitted our wrong eyes, but willing to straighten out, to, willing to set these matters straight. Now we look at these resentments in the, in the fourth column. We look at the fourth column. Not what did they do, but what did we do? You know, a lot of times they said we set the ball rolling. We did something that based on self. And, and, and it hurt them, and they retaliated against us, and we, resent, we resented them. But we started the whole thing. Maybe it was our own selfishness, our own self-seeking, some dishonesty that caused that. And what, what we usually do is what happens is a... It's a good way of escape. See, when you do things like that, you'll resent those people over and over and over and over and over. Just resent the hell out of them. Have to play it a lot. And what you do is you can resent them, and we cast the blame on them, and resent the hell out of them, and that, that, that allows us to escape and cover up what we have done. See, a resentment is a lot of time a lie. A resentment is a way to put the blame on someone else and to excuse ourselves. And that's why we have to play it so much. You know, we have to play it over and over and over and over and over. And it's really not true. So, once we list and analyze, we're looking at fourth column, we, and we look. And we can see what we did. And what was involved in, in that resentment. What role did we play in that resentment? And most of the time, you know, these deep resentments... That's what we're doing. We're using that resentment for an excuse to cover up and hide behind. Because if it wasn't for some reason, we never would have it. 
There is no way that we would work at something like that if it wasn't serving a purpose for us. A resentment is serving a purpose for the person who uses it. He's using that for an excuse to really look at himself. When I looked into that fourth column, what's the exact nature of the wrong, the fault, the mistake, the defect, the shortcoming? The wrong, of course, is the resentment. That's what blocks us off from God's will. And the nature of it means what's the inherent characteristic of it? What's at the core of it? What's within me that allowed that thing to happen in the first place? And disregarding what the other person did, looking only at what I did, I begin to realize what I used resentments for. You see, I had my wife's name on here, Barbara. The cause was she filed for divorce three times the last year I drank. That threatened every part of self. That threatened every part of self. And I was really upset with her for doing that until I looked in the fourth column. And I suddenly realized that based on my own selfishness, I'd been out there doing some things that I shouldn't have been doing. And I got caught at them when she filed for divorce. I realized if I hadn't been so dishonest, I wouldn't have been sneaking around lying all the time. And she probably wouldn't have divorced. If I'd been a little more considerate of my wife and children, I wouldn't have been doing those things in the first place. And she probably would not have divorced me. And as I went down that list of resentments, I began to see something I didn't like at all. I began to see why I loved resentments. Because I would do something to somebody and they would retaliate against me and that I would resent and then every time I played that over in my head, they got a little worse and I got a little bit better. And I would play it and play it and play it and they would get worse and I would get better until finally I could transfer all blame from me to them and completely disregard what I had done and I really believed it was the truth. I really believed it was the truth. A resentment in your head today, look at it very carefully, it probably isn't true. You know, as a good practicing alcoholic, I think we have to develop those kind of skills. I don't think we could live with ourselves if we had to honestly face what goes on in our life while we're drinking and raising hell. So we transfer blame to other people through resentments. And that excuses ourselves and allows us to go on with the life we want to live. And I didn't know that until I looked into the fourth column. And as I went down there, name after name after name after name, everyone for me was somebody or something that I had done something to. Now I realize there's people in the room today that probably got resentments against people from the past, and they didn't have anything to do with it. Oh, probably mother might have done something to us, or father, or brother, or the neighbor kid, or etc. And we resent the hell out of them for it today. But now that we know what a resentment does to us, if we still don't want to get rid of it, then we must be using it for something. Because you see, I can use a resentment from the past to justify not doing some things I really ought to do. The lady in the story blamed her lack of education on her resentment toward her mother, Bull. Her mama didn't cause that. She blamed her marital failure on her mother, Bull. Mother didn't cause that. 
She blamed her alcoholism on mother, bull. The mother didn't cause that. I'm either using those kind of resentments to justify not doing things I ought to do, or just as importantly, I may be using them to justify doing some things I shouldn't do. Because after all, if they hadn't have done that to me, then I wouldn't be the way I am, and I wouldn't have to do this to you. I see a lot of people in AA today sitting around tables and rooms and discussing those things that were done to us in the past and trying to figure out why those people did those things to us. Well, it doesn't make any difference why they did them. It's done and it's over with, and we can't do anything about that. Then we sit around and we try to figure out what those things they did to us, why they made us the way we are today. And it really doesn't make any difference why they made us the way we are today. The question is, that's the way we are. Now, how do we get rid of it? How do we get rid of it? That's what AA is for, and that's what this step is for. It's not to figure out all those things from the past as to why they did it and why it made us this way. It is to get rid of these resentments. And if we can get rid of them, they don't, we don't have to worry about why they did it. And we don't have to worry about why it made us the way we are, because we can get it out of our mind and get rid of it and be free from the past. And we can live peaceful and happy and free. But I'll guarantee you, as long as we sit around and discuss resentments, we'll never get rid of them. There comes a time when we have to face it. And there comes a time that we have to look at why, why don't I want to turn loose of it? What is it I'm using it for? And if we wasn't so selfish, if we would consider other people a little more, maybe we could turn those things loose and get rid of them. You see, my book shows me how I can live 100% resentment-free if I want to, but I've got to want to first. And just think, I've looked in my store up here. I have found those damaged and unsaleable goods called resentments. I have done something about their removal, and they are now gone. And God won't allow a vacuum in my head. When those resentments start to disappear, they're going to be replaced with something else. The good qualities of God can come to the surface now. I may find a little love of my fellow man. I may find a little peace of mind, a little serenity, a little happiness. I may find understanding for my fellow man. And in that part of my head, I'm in less chance of getting drunk than I was before I started the inventory. You see, there's nothing scary here at all. Nothing to be afraid of. Nothing really that difficult. It is a method to look at, get rid of resentments, and a way to start living where I can keep them from coming back in the future. That fourth column is my old personality. That's the personality I developed as a practicing alcoholic. I became very selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate. Now, if I don't do something to change that fourth column, then I'm going to keep on doing the same old things. And I'm going to keep on hurting people, and they're going to retaliate against me, and I'm going to resent them, and that's going to block me off from God's will. But if I can become less selfish, less dishonest, less self-seeking and frightened, less inconsiderate of other people, then maybe I can live without hurting them. And maybe I can live with peace of mind and happiness.
You see, this is a positive thing. There's nothing negative about step four at all. We're going to look at two more parts of self before we're through. Right now, we've done resentments only. Next session, we'll be talking about fears, and then we'll go a little into sex. But we can get rid of this stuff from the past if we wish to. And it really does work. Now, let's look very briefly to see what we have accomplished through this process, Joe. Okay. And looking at that illustration before we leave that, that second column is a classic example of what we were talking about. Uh, Mr. Brown told my wife about my mistress, and that interfered with his self-esteem and a personal relationship. As we said, it interfered with his acceptable life, and sex life, and it interfered with his hidden sex life. Okay. And he hated, and he really resented Brown for what he did. But we can obviously see, you know, over in the fourth column, if he hadn't been so self-seeking and dishonest and so selfish and frightened and inconsiderate of his wife, he wouldn't have had a mistress in the first place, and Brown wouldn't have had nothing to tell. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you know I mean? But what he did, he used that resentment to throw the blame on Brown so he could escape what he had done in the first place. That's why he needed that resentment against Brown. So as we go through this, we can finally get down to the truth and we can see this. Okay, now if we have completed the resentment inventory, the whole thing up here is step four, up around the top. And on this sheet of paper, we got all the information we need for the character defects that we got, the things we're going to talk to another human God, ourselves, or another human being about as far as resentment is concerned. I'll list it in the fourth column for step five. We also have the things listed in that column we're willing to let go of, go of in regards to our resentments. And we also have the things that we're going to ask God to take away in step seven. We also found we got down to the truth of it. Some of these people on our resentment lists, we owe them amends, too. We're going to find that some of these people on the resentment sheet, we owe an amends. So they go on step eight and nine. And once we analyze this, we're going to find out uh, that that is true. That some of those people, we owe an amends. And our book says we should have been making this list while we were doing the inventory. So we're going to find that some of the people on our resentment sheet, some of the people on our fear sheet, some of the people on our, on our sex sheet, we're going to owe them a men. So we'll be doing this while we are, uh, as we go through the inventory. Now this is why it makes step eight so much easier. You know, if we can, if we, if we can see why doing the inventory, forth within, within us, caused us to harm these people, then we're, we're, it's easier for us to make the amend. It's easier for us to become willing to make the amends if we see it in step four. If we'll see what within us caused us to harm these people, then in step eight becomes a lot more easier as we're willing to make the amends after we see our involvement in that harm. So we have all the information left, left laid out for our resentments on this one sheet. If we have done it like the big book said, though, we have all the information for 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 as far as resentment is concerned has been all prepared as we went through resentments in the inventory.
We're going to find when we come back and do fears and sex, and then look into step five, that Bill used these words in that fourth column, such as wrongs, faults, mistakes, defects, and shortcomings, where he used them interchangeably back and forth, never paying any attention to what he called them. And we've seen AA meetings lasting hours, people arguing about what's the difference between a defect and a shortcoming, and what's a wrong and what's a fault. And we're going to see Bill using them interchangeably, never paying any attention to what they are. They are what we find in step four. They are what we're going to talk to somebody else about in five. They're what we're going to come willing to turn loose of in six, and they are what we'll ask God to take away in seven. And if God can remove some of those, then we can have a personality change. And maybe we won't do the same old things over and over again. And that's all we have for now. Who's going to close the meeting? Everybody, my name is Charlie Parman. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Because I'm a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics and all. <laughs> By the grace of the power that I found in the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I have found necessary to take a drink for 6,983 days today, one day at a time. Uh, a mutual friend of mine and Joe's just passed in front of us, and Joe said, I see Richard's here in time for sex this morning. <laughs> uh, Jimmy, since we're going to be talking about sex this morning, Jimmy has asked me to, uh, to tell you about my dog. Uh, I love, I love sex, huh? Excuse me, Charlie. I, He's going to tell you about my I wife. have another announcement I want to make. I love to be up here talking. And this, the drawing for the first edition of the big book will be held immediately before lunch. Okay? Thank you, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> now talk about my dog. Everybody who's got a dog usually calls him Rover or Boy, but I call my dog Sex. Now, Sex has been very embarrassing to me from time to time. When I went to City Hall to renew his license, I told the clerk I'd like to have a license for Sex. He said, I'd like to have one, too. <laughs> but then I said, you don't understand, this is a dog. And he said, I wouldn't care what she looked like. <laughs> And then I said, you don't understand, I've had sex since I was nine years old. He said, boy, you must have been quite a kid. When my wife and I got married and went on our honeymoon, I took the dog with me. I told the motel, motel clerk I wanted a room for my wife and me and a special room for sex. And he said, every room in the place is for sex. I said, you don't understand, sex keeps me awake at night. And the clerk said, me too. One day I entered sex in a contest, but before the competition began, the dog ran away. And another contestant asked me why I was standing there looking around. I said, I'd have planned to have sex in the contest. He said, well, you should have sold your own tickets then. I, I said, but you don't understand. I'd planned to have sex on TV. He said, you really are a show-off, aren't you? When my wife and I separated, we went to court to fight for custody of the dog. And I said, Your Honor, I had sex before I was married. And the judge said, Me too. <laughs> and then I said, 
But, Your Honor, after I was married, sex left me. And the judge said, me too. <laughs> Last night, old sex ran off again, and I spent hours looking around for him. And a cop came over to me and said, what are you doing this alley at 4 o'clock in the morning? I said, I'm looking for sex. And my case comes up in court next week. Go. <laughs> My name is Joe, and I'm a real alcoholic. <laughs> Through God's grace, and because this program works in my life each day, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink of alcohol since March of 1962, and for this I'm grateful. Uh, this is always a, a great time each Sunday morning when we're doing this. And Charlie usually gets into sex on Sunday morning. So people always ask me uh, why he knows so much about it. And I tell him he's got a good memory. <laughs> but it was him doing hickory dickory dock this morning, not me. <laughs> but as we close yesterday on resentments, we for the first time we were able to list and analyze our resentments to get down to the truth of them, and, and the truth is what gives us the freedom. Once we got them all down and we could finally see them in the, in the new light of the understanding that the inventory gave us. In the first column, we listed the names of uh, uh, the people, the principles, and institutions that we resented. And again, we emphasize that you do this from top to bottom. Now, you have to have this list first. This is the foundation. Now, from that list, once we get the first column down, then we can go to the second column. And you will notice that each column, one column is developed from the other. Because you can't do anything unless you get all the names down. And from the names, you can extract the causes. The second column can come from the first column. And then we go that, we do that from top to bottom. Once we get all the causes down, then we can develop the third column. By looking at the causes, we can say, which part of self did the cause affect? We don't even have to look at the name. We just look at the second column to identify what part of self is involved in the third column. And then once we get the third column down, then we can look and see what within ourselves was involved in each of these resentments. And once these things are listed for the first time, we got the true picture of the resentments. And by doing that, you know, step four is just not... Uh, people said it's writing it down, but we know step four, if, if taken like the big book says to take it, is a very powerful step. It's a cleansing step. It's a removing step. It's not just writing it down. It's getting rid of things. And as we look at these things to see the truth of them, we said about most of them will leave us. There will be some resentments to stay, and then we ask, for, we pray um, for those deep resentments. And if, if possibly, we, we never will do it, but if we could be, according to the book, 100% free of resentments if we completed this process. Now, while we did this, we said that, that we found out that once we listed and analyzed this, we found that the information in the fourth column was steps five, six, and seven. The exact nature of the, of the resentment is uh, a person, uh, our selfishness, self-centeredness, inconsideration, self-seeking or frightened, that one of those things was the exact nature of the resentment. It wasn't what the other people did. 
the real, real root cause of it was our character defects because if we hadn't had that character defect at that time, self would, you know, it wouldn't have made any difference what those people did. We wouldn't have had the resentment. So as we go through that, we, uh, we gather all the information for five, six, and seven. You know, in the first column, we find out that some of those people that we are resenting, we owe them amends. So we have made the list for eight and nine as far as resentment is concerned. So we have done that, then we, as we said, we are carrying out the, the uh, decision. We are removing the things that block us from God. Now, once we have completed resentments, we begin with the next phase at the bottom of page 67. Notice the word fear. And as we said, you know, the three, the three main things that block us from God is resentments, uh, which, as we said, was wrong judgment. And the next one is fear, which is wrong believing. And we're going to list and analyze the fears the same way we did resentments. Um, notice the word fear is bracket along difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employee, and the wife. This short word somehow touches almost every aspect, aspect of our lives. It is an evil cardinal threat. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune. We felt we didn't deserve, but did not. We ourselves set the ball the road. Again, it begins with us. Um, sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It causes more trouble. And again, just like resentments, fear is a part of life. It's not by chance that we have fear. And there's really nothing wrong with fear in this right context. Fear is a part of every human life. We couldn't live one day without fear. Uh, we couldn't cross the street. We couldn't drive an automobile. It's caution. And we call it, we, we need these things in order to function. We still get these same things that gets out of control. Uh, we couldn't have this meeting this morning without fear. We couldn't, get, we couldn't have a meeting. We, couldn't, we, couldn't get, we wouldn't be able to get along. Because if it wasn't for fear, everybody else would tell the other one what he thought about him this morning. And that wouldn't be good, you know. We'd have a... <laughs> and the meeting would break up real quick. Um, so fear is a part of life. But just like resentments, uh, you know, we have to control these things. or just like anything else in our lives. If we don't control these things in our lives, then we give... Then we, we let other people take control of us. It's either there's no break even. Either we control these things, or other people and our, and, and our world controls us. So what we're going to do is, is to list and analyze these fears, get down to the truth of them, and get them out of them, process them just like we did our resentment. On page 68 in the first paragraph, we see basically the same set of instructions to review fears as we saw to review resentments. For instance, it tells me we reviewed our fears thoroughly, we put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. We asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. So on the review of fear sheet, which we've given you, we take column one and we list those things we're fearful of, always working from top to bottom. I found for fears the same thing I found for resentments. I didn't think I had very much fear. 
And especially as a man, I felt I needed to be macho, and if I had fear, never show it anyhow. But when I begin to really list those fears, I begin to realize how much fear does dominate my thinking. You know, we've got all kinds of fears. We're afraid of what other people think of us. We have fears connected with the federal government. Most of us as alcoholics have fears connected with the police department. I had fears connected with the Internal Revenue Service. I had fears connected with the church. I had fears connected with my job. I had fears connected with the future. I had fears connected with how my children's going to turn out. I had fears connected with what's my wife going to do. And on and on and on and on. And I didn't really realize how many fears I had until I filled out that first column and made a list of my fears. And when I finished it up, I began to see that fear dominates my thinking just exactly like resentment did. Now, if fear dominates my thinking, then God can't. And one of those unsaleable items, one of those damaged stock in trade, are the fears, those things that separate me and block me off from God's will. And if I don't do something about them, there's no way that God can enter my mind any more than he couldn't enter it filled with resentments. In column two, I put down, why do I have the fear? Now, this is not an attempt to psychoanalyze ourselves. We're not going to say, well, the reason I fear the dark is because mother didn't change my diapers right when I was nine months old. <laughs> Some fears I'm supposed to have, anyhow. You know, I'm supposed to be afraid of the dark. I don't have headlights and I can't see at night. That kind of fear brings caution and lets me function after dark. But if the fear of the dark is so strong that it keeps me from going outside, period, then I probably need to do something about it because it's beginning to control me then. I have a fear of heights. Well, I'm supposed to have a fear of heights because I don't have wings and I can't fly. <laughs> that brings caution. But if that fear is so deep that I'm even afraid to walk up the stairs or get in an elevator, then that fear is beginning to control my life and I need to do something about it. Most fears that I have, I can usually find a root cause for them. For instance, the fears connected with my wife, the reason I have that is if she ever really does find out all those things I was doing 20 years ago, she's probably going to file for divorce today yet. You know, she filed three times the last year I drank, but she didn't know all that was going on. <laughs> I have fears connected with the Internal Revenue Service. Why? Because I cheated on my income tax, that's why. And nearly every fear that I've got, I can find a cause for it, and usually it's because of something I've done. Or I'm afraid I'm going to lose something I've got, or I'm not going to get something I want. I had fears connected with my children. I always thought it was because I wanted them to turn out okay so they could have a better life than I had. That isn't true. The reason I have fears connected to my children is what's other people going to think about me if they don't turn out okay? In column three, I look to see which part of self is affected. And every fear that I've got is going to be because there's some threat to some part of my basic instincts alive. If it's a threat to my self-esteem, I feel fear. If it's a threat to a personal relationship, I feel fear. If it's a threat to my security, I feel fear. If it's a threat to my sex life, hidden or acceptable, I feel fear. 
If it's a threat to my plans, my ambitions for the future, I feel fear. It's impossible for me to feel fear without a threat to one of those basic instincts of life. So I follow the same procedure with fears that I did for resentments. In the fourth column, after I have lifted and filled out the first three, I can then read it from left to right. And in the fourth column, I look to see the exact nature of the wrong. Well, the wrong is the fear. That's what's blocking me off from God's will. But what's the nature of it? What's at the core of it? And I see the same basic character defects in the fourth column. If I wasn't so selfish, I wouldn't be putting myself in those positions to feel that kind of fear. If I wasn't so dishonest, I wouldn't have cheated the Internal Revenue Service in the first place. If I wasn't such a frightened individual, if I wasn't saying to myself, well, here I am, 40 years old, and I better get out there and get some of it in while I can before I get too old, I wouldn't have been doing a lot of those things that caused my trouble for me anyhow. If I'd been more considerate of my wife and children and other people, I wouldn't have been doing a lot of the things that I was doing. And I see the same old personality sitting out there in the fourth column that I saw for resentments. If I stay selfish, if I stay dishonest, if I stay frightened, if I stay inconsiderate, I'm going to keep on doing the same things I've always done. And I'm going to keep on hurting people, and they're going to retaliate, and that's going to create pain and suffering for me. And even if I'm not hurting people, if I stay selfish, and I'll be greedy, and I'll be scared to death that I'm not going to get what I want, or I'm going to lose what I've already got. And if fear dominates my thinking, then God can't. But if I could change the fourth column and become less selfish, less dishonest, less frightened, less inconsiderate, then I could probably live with less fear. We'll never lose all fear, just like we'll never lose all resentments. God gave us fear for a useful purpose. It's only when it drives us and dominates us and creates problems for us that it becomes something we really need to start doing something about. Normal fear is okay. That brings caution, and that keeps us out of trouble. Joe? He said, perhaps there is a better way. We think so. But we're now on a different basis, the basis of trust and relying upon God. We trust an infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. Remember, we have made a decision. Just to the extent that we do as he as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh with those who think spirituality a way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is a way of strength. The verdict of ages is faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. They never apologize for God. Instead, they let him demonstrate through us what he can do. And you know, and here we see that uh, if we can overcome fear, he talks about we get courage in our lives. And now we have a, a, another prayer in step four. Again, we hear about different prayers, but there's prayer in every step in the big book. After, after step three, there's prayer in every step. And here's another prayer, and there are three, three or four more. There's another one in six. But here in fear, it says, We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what have us be at once we commence to outgrow fear. And we do the same thing. We know as the things say in the process, once we get these fears down, it's like I did our resentments. 
and we look at them and we're able to analyze them, get them all down and analyze them, we'll get rid of, just like 95% of the re resentments, we'll probably get rid of 95% of our fears because when we get down and look at them, uh, most of them are going to look pretty dumb for people like us. Uh, and then there will be some deep-seated fears, and we'll use the same instrument of prayer. There is no way that, that fear can remain in the life of prayer. And we're praying about these. The courage will come. And we will, over, he says, right away, at once, we will commence to outgrow fear. I think if we ask God through prayer for 14 days, the same as we did for resentments, asking him to remove that fear and asking him to show us what we should be instead, that fear is going to disappear. And we can live relatively free of fear, <clears throat> especially those that drive and dominate us if we'll follow the procedure. You see, this is another promise. It says at once we'll commence to outgrow that fear. And I think we need to realize the same as we did for resentments. If, if we can see what fear does to us, and we can see how it blocks us off from God's will and may cause us to go back to drinking, then we should be ready to get rid of that fear. And if we've got a fear that we're holding on to and we don't want to turn it loose, we need to look at it very closely because we're probably using it to justify something. You know, we can use fear to not justify doing things we really should be doing. And we can also use fear to justify doing things we shouldn't be doing. You know, a lot of us, after we've sobered up and been sober a while, we would like to go back to school and finish an education. But many of us won't do that simply because of fear. A fear that we can't compete, a fear that we won't measure up, a fear that we'll be a failure, and that fear freezes us and keeps us from doing what we want to do. All my life I wanted to build a set of kitchen cabinets, but I knew that if I built them they wouldn't look very good. People would see the mistakes and laugh at them and I would be embarrassed, so I never would build a set of kitchen cabinets. One day, after I'd been sober and worked the program a while, I decided to build myself a set of kitchen cabinets, and I did. And they don't look very good, and there's lots of mistakes, and people laugh at it, but I really don't care anymore. <laughs> because the fear of what other people think, to a great extent, has been removed. And if we're really holding on to fear, and we don't want to turn loose of it, we probably ought to look at it very, very closely. Because we're probably using it for some form of justification. We can be with fear the same as resentment, almost 100% free of it if we want to, and if we'll work at it. And when it's gone, another damaged and unsaleable goods has been taken out of my store, another shelf has been cleaned off, and now good items in stock can come in and replace that fear. God will not allow a vacuum in my head. When that fear disappears, it will have to be replaced by something. And the only thing to replace it is the opposite. And, of course, we know that that would be faith and courage. And I find that I don't have to go look for faith and courage, that as the fear disappears, courage automatically comes to the surface. Now, if God dwells within each of us, all those good assets are there also. And I begin to operate on courage instead of on fear. And life becomes a lot simpler and a lot easier operating on courage instead of fear. Joe? Okay. As we complete this uh, fear inventory, we have the same results. 
uh, in the fourth column, we will have listed the uh, information for step five that we're going to talk to another person in regards to our fears, the things we're willing to let go of in six, and the things we're going to ask God to remove in seven that relates to our fears. We're going to also find that some of the people in, on our fear sheet, the reason we fear them, we owe them an amends. So we're making a list for step eight and nine, and it's coming off of these sheets. So we have all the information we need for four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine for regarding spirit if we have done a complete inventory. And if we have carried out this, this section of the inventory, as Charlie said, we are removed, we have removed the fears. So now we can carry out, we are still carrying out the decision we made in step three. We made a decision to turn our will and our life with care of God, and now we're clearing away the things that block us from that decision. And we have removed the second thing that blocks us from the decision in step three, fear. Now, once we complete fear, it begins to look at the, the final roadblock. And it begins in How About Sex? At the bottom of the page... 68, the final hurdle that we have to work on. He says, now about sex, <clears throat> many of us needed an overhauling there. Now, you old fellas don't get your hopes up. This is not going to be dealing so much with physical sex <laughs> as it does with the mind or the way we think about sex. He said, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. And here we always like to stop and, and look at the idea that sex between human beings is really different than it is among the other species of animals on the face of the earth. Physically, it might be the same. But emotionally, it's entirely different. You see, the other animals on the face of the earth, they don't have self-will. They don't have the ability to make choices and make decisions. Everything they do is at God's direction. And when it's time for them to have sex, usually God will signify that time by some physical change in the female of the species. The male will sense that change. The male prepares himself, the two join together, and it's kind of like bang, bang, thank you, ma'am. And as soon as it's over with, they go on their way. They join together in sex purely for reproduction of their race, whatever it might be. God decides the time of the year. God decides the place. God decides the position. They do not think about it beforehand. They do not think about it while doing it. Nor do they think about it after it's over with. They don't have those abilities. But since God gave us self-will, he gave us this great thing called choice. And probably that's where most of the troubles of the human race come from as far as sex is concerned. Because you see, we can think about it. We can think about it, about it before we do it. Uh, we can think about it while we're doing it. And we can think about it after we're through with it. 
We can decide when we're going to do it. We can do it any time we wish to, day or night, any time of the year. We can decide who we're going to do it with. We can decide how many times we're going to do it. We can decide how many people we're going to do it with. And we can even decide what position we're going to do it in. No, it's absolutely amazing. I think there's something like 64 different positions, supposedly. Uh, God, I never could get even halfway there. I, <laughs> four or five is about all I've ever been able to do. And it seems as though most of our troubles are based on that fact that we can think about it and we can make decisions about it. The book tells me that one set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. And you and I have heard that set of voices all our life. They're the ones that say sex is dirty, that you ought to do it in one time, in one place, in one position, with one person, and the only reason to do it is to reproduce the human race and to enjoy it as a sinful thing. And I've heard that set of voices over and over and over all my life. They, they are the extremes on one end. He said, then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex. Did he bewail the institution of marriage? You think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. And we hear those voices today all the time. They're the ones that say you ought to be able to do sex anytime you want to, in any position you want to, with anybody you want to, as many times as you want to, and if you don't enjoy it, there's something wrong with you every time. Now, I think today they would call that the sexual revolution. The main thing I see wrong with that is it happened 25 years too late for me to participate in it. And, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I would have been able to stand that at all. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. And the book said we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? And I read that with great relief. Because I knew that this book was going to condemn me for what I had been in the past, and I knew this book was going to tell me what I was going to have to do sexually in the future. And I'd already made up my mind that I wasn't going to pay a bit of attention to it, period. And when I read that they're going to stay out of that controversy, that they're not going to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct, that came with relief. And today I believe that's the way it would almost have to be anyhow. Because, you know, the, the book cannot tell us the best way to how, how to have sex. Because these sexual things will differ in different parts of the world. What would be acceptable sex here in, in, in the New York City area may not always be acceptable in the Bible Belt in Maysville, Arkansas, where I came from. I'll guarantee you what's acceptable in San Francisco probably would not be acceptable in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, these are things that we'll have to decide on our own. And the book in no way deals with a morality question or in no way questions the things that we do 
nor in no way condemns us for the past. What it's going to do is give us a way to look at our sexual past to see if we perhaps have harmed other people, and if so, have they retaliated against us and create pain for us? And then how can we live in the future free from that pain and still have some form of decent sex life? It says, we reviewed our own conduct over the years past, or had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. Basically, the same set of instructions to review our past sex conduct that we have for resentment and fears. And in one, we list, who did I hurt? Now, most of us in some way have hurt other people somehow in the sexual area. Now, there's many ways we hurt people in the sexual area. If we're in a relationship with another human being, and if we go out outside of that relationship and have sex, and our partner finds out about it, then most certainly we've hurt them by us doing so. Now, if I'm married and my wife at home finds out about that, then surely I've hurt her. And if it creates a problem in my home and there's children there, then surely I've hurt the children. If the partner that I had outside of my marriage, if it becomes common knowledge, then surely I've hurt her also. And if she has the children involved, then surely they're going to be hurt. And if she has a spouse over there and he finds out about it, then surely I've hurt him also. One casual act on my part could end up hurting several different people by that one thing. Sometimes we hurt people in the sexual area by demanding more than our fair share of sex. Now, maybe they don't really care that much about doing it all the times we want to. And maybe we insist on having sex whether they want to or not at any time of the day or night. And if so, we certainly create some emotional harm for them. Sometimes we hurt people in the sexual area by simply withholding sex. Maybe we've become casual and cold about it. Maybe we don't really want to do it. And maybe we withhold our fair share in our relationship, which creates a problem for the other person. Oh, sometimes we create sexual harms in other people by demanding they do it in ways we don't want to do it. And insisting that we have our way and forcing that on them, and surely that creates some emotional harm for them. Sometimes we actually hurt them physically by demanding that they have sex in ways they don't particularly want to. But in order for us to get our satisfaction, we go ahead and demand we do it the way we want to. Some of us have never really done anything wrong in the sexual area. But most of us found a long time ago we can create jealousy and suspicion in another human being and get them to pay attention to us. And sometimes our partner's not paying attention the way we think they should, so we, in turn, will start a casual flirtation with somebody else to create jealousy and suspicion. And many times we get involved much deeper than we intended to and end up hurting some people over that. 
This reading, this is not a list of dirty, filthy, nasty things. We simply make a list of the people we have hurt by our sex conduct of the past. And if God dwells within each of us, and I'm sure he does, and I think we all know who we have hurt in the past by our own sexual conduct. Column two, we put down, what did I do? Very simple. Did I commit adultery? Did I force them to do it in ways they didn't want to? Did I demand more than my fair share? What did I do? The third column, I think, will be the revealing column. What court itself caused this? Now, you would think that those harms we do to other people in the sexual area would have been caused usually by the sex instinct. And once in a while, that's probably true. Once in a while, to get the sexual release and gratification, both physically and emotionally, that comes from sex, we may be doing the wrong thing at the wrong time because of the sex instinct. But I think most of us will find that generally it was caused by one of the other two instincts. You know, as young boys growing up, we men learned at a very early age that you could use sex to build your self-esteem. After all, the more members of the opposite sex you can attract to yourself, the greater man you can really be. Now, we boys call that John Wayneism. I don't know what you girls called it, but some of you girls tell me you had the same problem, using sex to attract members of the opposite sex and build your self-esteem and feel better about yourself. Now, God intended for sex to be used to reproduce the human race, and he made it enjoyable so we would do those things. But if we're using it to build our self-esteem, then certainly that's not to reproduce or to enjoy either one. You know, sometimes we use sex to buy emotional security. Maybe we're just lonesome. Maybe we just want somebody to pay attention to us. And we found out a long time ago we could give sex and buy back a personal relationship and have somebody paying attention to us, even though we may not even want the sex, we're willing to make the trade. Well, now that's not for enjoyment nor to reproduce either one. That's simply to build a personal relationship. Sometimes we use sex to buy material security. Maybe we're in a sexual situation we would really rather not even be in. But we find we've become so overly dependent upon another human being for our material values that, that we give sex to buy back material security. Oh, sometimes we use sex to get even with other people. Maybe we're in a relationship and we find out that our partner has gone out and done something they shouldn't do and we say, by golly, we'll show them and we'll go out and do the same identical thing. And the fallacy in that is that after we've done it, we can't afford to tell them. But there, we were using sex to get even with another human being, not to enjoy nor to reproduce. Sometimes we use sex to force our will on another human being. They're not doing what we want them to do, so we say, we'll show them. We'll just cut them off at the pass, and we won't let them have any until they come around our way of thinking. Now, we boys aren't too good at that. We only last two or three days. But you girls have honed it to perfection. You know exactly what to do with it. And I don't blame you. If I could get by with it, I would too. 
And I think all of us might be amazed if we would really do this and see what we've been using sex for. When I begin to realize this, two great things happen for me immediately. First, a lot of guilt began to disappear. But you see, I always thought I was just a dirty, filthy old man. But I find out that isn't true, that I'm a human being, that I am emotionally sick in certain areas like other human beings, and I use sex outside of the proper relationships, not because I'm bad, but because I needed it to build my own self-esteem, and I needed it to fulfill other instincts of life. And when I realized that, a lot of guilt began to disappear. Also, when I realized what I was using sex for, the desire to go out and do that in the wrong time and the wrong place became less and less, because I was amazed at what I was doing with it. You see, I always thought I was oversexed. No, I wasn't oversexed, I was undersecure. And I used sex to build my self-esteem, and I didn't know that until I listed and analyzed those things on this sheet. And the day I saw that, then that desire that drove me to go do those things became less and less, and I began to be able to get some kind of handle on this sex thing. And I don't think any of us can realize what we've done with it until we put it on paper and take a look at it. I then fill out the fourth column, and in the fourth column I see the same old basic character defects involved in sex that I did any other two. If I wasn't so selfish, I wouldn't be out there doing that stuff. If I wasn't so dishonest, I wouldn't be running around, sneaking around, and having to lie to my wife and other people. If I wasn't so afraid that I'm getting so old that I better get out there and get it or I'm going to miss out on something, I wouldn't be out there doing it in the first place. If I had more consideration for my wife, my children, and other people, I wouldn't be doing those things anyhow. But if I don't change in the fourth column... I'll keep right on doing the same old things, hurting the same old people, and feeling the same old pain. And even if they don't catch me at it, I'm scared to death they're going to. And if God dwells within me and I know the difference between right and wrong, surely I'm going to have to feel some guilt and remorse. It's not a question of morality. It's a question of whether I can keep on doing that stuff and live with it and stay sober. And if it blocks me off from God's will through fear, guilt, remorse, shame, and etc., then surely someday it will probably take me back to drinking again. Joe? In this way, having done this, you know, once we list and analyze this and see this, and see the real truth of what happens, in this way we, can, we, we try to shape a sane and sound idea of our future sex life by looking at the past. We have some plans for the future. And he said, we subject each relationship to the test. Was it selfish or not? The book doesn't care how you do sex. If you want to do sex hanging upside down from a tree limb by your toenails, that's fine with the book. But if you're forcing another human being to have sex with you hanging upside down from a tree limb by their toenails when they don't want to, chances are that's for selfish reasons only. That's the key question. Is it just selfish or not? We ask God to mold our ideas and help us live up to them. Remember always that our sex powers are God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly, to selfish, to spice, to loat. Whatever our ideas turn out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. 
We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided we do not bring about still more harm in doing so. And we see there already a little uh, indication of step nine, when to do so would injure them or others. We need to put this down and look at it and, and analyze it, the past, even though we maybe we won't be able to make amends to it, found it. In other words, we treat sex as we want any other problem. In meditation, we ask God what we should do in each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with other persons is often desirable. I, I think the book is very specific here, but we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are fanatical about sex and others are loose. We avoid hysteria, thinking our advice. We have a friend of ours that says all the time, and it's really true, is one thing around AA, uh, it says we, sh we share our experience, strength, and hope. And I think a lot of us have added advice. You know, you can get a lot of advice around AA, too. And if you want to do something bad enough, and you talk to enough AA people, you'll finally find somebody to agree with you. But the book is very specific here when it comes to our sex lives. It says we let God be the final judge. And I don't think that that is anything new. I found out, you know, it really wasn't new in my life. You know, I, I have never been in a sexual situation in my life that was wrong, that I didn't know it was wrong. <laughs> it seemed like I've always had that. It says, let's listen to that. You know, you can hear all kind of talk around AA about sex. People say, well, you shouldn't have any relationship for a year. I said, the book doesn't say that, you know. Well, he's bringing all kind of things. A young lady asked me uh, that one time, and she said, do you believe in staying out of relationships for a year? And I said, she said, that's what my sponsor said. I said, well, I don't have to do with your sponsor, but tell her if she did it, you'd do it. <laughs> you know, we... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, we do get a lot of advice. And the book, the book doesn't say that. It tells us to ask God. Let God be the final judge. And it says we might make some mistakes with this. We're not perfect. So suppose we fall short of the chosen idea and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only half true. It depends upon our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done. And have an honest desire to let God take us a better thing, we believe we'll be forgiven and have learned our lesson. Now, we might make some mistakes, but it's in our attitude. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we're quite sure to drink. We're not theorizing. These are facts of our experience. And I think it's the key thing. Anything in life, if it is going to hurt another person, it's wrong for us. To some of about sex, we're earnest to pray for the right idea, for guidance. Again, prayer. Prayer is throughout here. Another prayer. We pray for guidance in these questionable situations and for strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves hard into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves and requires and prayers areas when the year would mean heartache. And now he gives us an ultimate weapon for sex. Work with another alcoholic. Yeah, it seems like that's the only way that we can get out of self. Once we, when we get involved with another alcoholic, we get so involved in his life that we are their lives that it takes us out of self and God can work in our lives. This is the ultimate weapon. When any, anything else fails, work with another alcoholic. Now we're going to 
Now that we have completed sex, we have quite naturally the same information on that sheet. On the, in, in the fourth column, we have the things that we're going to talk to another human being about. We're going to have uh, the uh, the things we're willing to let go of, the character defects involved with the sex conduct of the past, and the things we're going to ask God to remove listed in the fourth column. We also have some people on this list that we have harmed. And they go on the step eight and nine lists, and we might not be able to make amends to them, but we sure have them on the list. Um, so we have did everything we need for sex throughout the rest of the program. And now we have a, we're going to summarize what we have done in the inventory. If we have been through our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. It doesn't say it here, and I don't like to add nothing to the book, but we have also listed and analyzed our fears. We have also listed and analyzed our sex conduct of the past. We have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We have commenced to see their terrible destruction. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look at them as sick people. Now, we look through the book. You know, the first step, we just saw the problem, and it wasn't a, we really didn't do anything. There was really no great progress in the first step, except we saw the problem. The second step, we saw the solution. The third step, we just made a decision. We didn't do anything much. We just made a decision. So we didn't get any personality change out of the first three steps. Here's the first personality change taking place after the fourth step. We learn, you know, we learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, but we look at them as sick people. I mean, we put some action into the fourth step so we get something out of it. And we're going to see the personality change take place now from here on out, four, five, six. But gradually, we're going to see things begin to happen as a result of these action steps. Step four is a real action step, and we get something from it. So we have listed people we have hurt by our conduct, and we will straighten out the past if we can. We have made the list for step eight and nine. And also right here, usually I, we suggest, I do, with people I work with, you know, if you've got anybody else you have harmed, uh, and if for any other reason it might not be a sexual, you can just put it at the bottom of that sheet. If you're working with somebody, put down, you know, what you did to them. And, and also analyze it out. Which part of self caused you to do it? And which character defect? You know, step eight will be more e it's so easier when you realize that you are what you what what within you caused you to do it. And you saw the role you played in this in this harm. And when you see which character defect within you caused this harm, it makes it it makes you more willing to make amends to it. You know, a good step four makes step eight eight a lot easier when we can see what we did to cause this harm to another individual. It's easier for us to go to them and make an amend. It's hard to make an amend when you don't see what caused you to do it. That's kind of a fault. When you really see in your gut which part of you and how you are involved in it, it makes you more willing to make amends. In this book, you read again and again that faith did us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision, step three, and an inventory of your grosser handicap, step four, you have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. And again, I love the term grosser handicaps. You know, our grosser handicaps 
are a wrong judgment, resentment, wrong believing, fear, and the guilt and remorse of the harms we have caused other people in the past. These are the three grosser things that block us from God. So we have removed our grosser handicaps, and that's what step four is all about. Most people, you know, they want to wait around until they get perfect to work the steps. <laughs> but we, all we want to do is start with our grosser handicaps. We're going to have another step later on that is going to go farther. You know, if I can get rid of these gross handicaps, then that's probably going to allow me then to have enough peace of mind to be able to stay sober long enough to work the rest of the program. But if I don't do something about some of these things, and they keep blocking me off from God's will, sooner or later they cause me to drink. And as I look back in my life today, uh, I don't think I've ever had an emotional problem that did not involve itself in one of these three ways anyhow. Every problem I can remember from the past is I was madder than hell at somebody, I was scared to death about something, or I have done something to hurt another human being. I don't think I've ever had an emotional problem that not revolve around one of those three things. And as I look forward into the future, I don't think I'll ever have a problem in the future that will not involve one of those three things. I'll be mad at somebody, or I'll be scared to death about something, or I will have hurt another human being. For me, I think this inventory is complete, because everything I've ever done has revolved around those three things anyhow. And if we can get that out of our head, we can have some peace of mind, some serenity, some happiness, and then we can continue with the rest of the program. You see, step four is not negative at all. Step four is a positive step. It's a cleansing step. It removes these things from us. It's not difficult to do, according to the book, nor is it necessarily anything to be afraid of. It's not just a list of dirty, filthy, nasty things. It's honestly, truthfully, morally looking at ourselves to see where our conduct of the past has really hurt other people and created problems in for us. I don't know whether you all have noticed or not, but as we finish up on step four, have you ever noticed that nearly all the information in the book on sex is on page 69? I don't know that that means anything at all, but, but almost all of it is on that particular page. Joe and I heard a story not long ago, again, about a young lady who had been sober in AA for 60 or 90 days, and she went to see her sponsor, and she said, uh, Sponsor, I'm having all kinds of trouble with sex. And her sponsor said, Oh, what seems to be the trouble? She said, Well, sober, I don't know anything about it at all. She said, The only time I've ever dealt with sex, the only time I've ever tried to attract a member of the opposite sex, is whenever I've been drinking. And she said, Sober, I just don't know what to do, how to function, or anything at all. And the sponsor said, well, I suggest you go home, get out your big book, and read page 69. And she said, there you will find the answers to any sexual problems you might have, drunk or sober. So the young lady said, great. She went home, got out her big book, proceeded to read, but she got confused on the page numbers. Instead of page 69, she read page 96. Just for the hell of it, let's go see what she read on page 96.
You see, there is some humor in the big book if you look for it. It's there. Okay, let's go to page 72. I know, I know everybody has been concerned, would we be able to complete the steps today? And the answer is yes. You see, we've done most of the work now. We can see as we filled out our inventory, we've already laid out everything we need for steps 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. 